Hello world, welcome to the Political Worldview podcast, December 10th, 2015, the Mass Shootings and Police Murders edition. I am Adam Quinn, Senior Lecturer in International Politics at the Political Science and International Studies Department of the University of Birmingham. I'm joined as usual by my co-hosts, Scott Lucas, a Professor of International Politics and Editor of News and Commentary site EA Worldview. Hello there, Scott. Good morning. And uh, by someone called Kristala Yakinthu, I don't know, it's been a long time. Long Can you, uh, uh, well, Welcome back. Uh, a New York much. correspondent uh, uh, returned, uh, returned to her day job, which is as a research fellow here at the university. Hello, Kristala. Hello, lovely to be back. Is it still morning? What time of day is it? <laughs> I have a which... strong black coffee here next to me. Excellent. Even its vapours uh, are helping me also in my plight. Onward, in this week's edition, Positively Bulging with America, uh, we have two topics. First, a jihadist terrorist gun rampage unfolds on the streets of the US homeland with 14 dead, but it takes a couple of days to work out that this is any different from the multi-victim gun murder sprees which America has become all too accustomed to in recent years. We talk counter-terrorism, guns, Islamophobia, and with a heavy heart, a bit of Donald Trump. Second, the police chief of Chicago is fired and the mayor is under pressure after the long-delayed release of video footage reveals compelling apparent evidence of the murder of a black man by a police officer a year ago, something it appears the city did its utmost to hush up. With Cristala freshly returned from indirect fieldwork on the United States and its culture in New York City, we take up the apparently ever-replenishing topic of racial strife and policing in the USA. On December 2nd, a married couple, Syed Farouk, 28, and Tashfeen Malik, 27, carried out a mass shooting in San Bernardino, California, leaving 14 dead and 21 wounded at the County Department of Public Health. They were later themselves killed by police in a shootout. From first reports, it appeared the attack might fit a well-established pattern in the United States of disgruntled employees undertaking murderous rampages at their places of work. Within days, however, the FBI had announced that they were treating it as a terrorist incident, having found an arsenal of weapons and bomb equipment at the shooter's home. Reports also emerged that the couple, he an American-born citizen, she born in Pakistan and formerly a resident of Saudi Arabia, had developed radical jihadist views in the months leading up to the attack and might have been inspired, though not directed by ISIS. As the facts emerged, the attack set off an avalanche of political combat with an initial wave of pro-gun control sentiment from liberals, which usually follows mass shootings, then washed over by a larger wave of right-wing concern about radical Islam, immigration and terrorism. Participants in the Republican Party presidential nomination contest ranged from those satisfied merely with projecting intense suspicion and surveillance onto Muslims collectively, through to primary poll leader Donald Trump, who shocked even his conservative opponents with the ferocity of his anti-Muslim attacks including an apparent suggestion that all Muslims should be excluded from the country. President Obama, meanwhile, did his best to be the adult in the room and hold the line against both discrimination at home and new Middle Eastern military adventures abroad. With uglier and uglier feelings bubbling up every day, the challenge of reaching broad consensus on anything in the United States in the areas of firearm regulation, counterterrorism, or immigration seems about as far away as ever, I think. So, Scott, where do you think this is headed? Was, was San Bernardino um, the Paris attacks of America and therefore the shove required to unleash all the dogs of demagoguery? Um, or is the sequence of events in this case just, just a bit too weird and Americans are too divided in their reaction to it for it to qualify as that? It's not the Paris attacks. It's not an Islamic State attack on America. It, it's equally troubling that it's almost like America is attacking itself. And I say that because of a double whammy of, um, 
I guess, of despair and frustration, the first part, the first blow is one that I'm used to every few months. I mean, I, I get used to a media cycle where there'll be a mass killing, say three years ago, when they killed school kids and teachers in Sandy Hook up in New Jersey. Mm -hmm. And you'll get the calls from, from media, from radio and TV. Do you think anything will be done about it? And almost at the end of every interview, I say in six months, we're going to be talking about this again. And usually it doesn't take six months. Two or three months later, there's another mass shooting in another place. And the same cycle of calls go again. I say, do you think anything will be done? And I say, no, because we're going to get diversions. I mean, I have heard everything in terms of rather than blaming the fact that people get access to guns, I've heard it bad parenting, a lack of faith in America, video games, rock music, corrosive TV, just a general mental illness that we aren't dealing with in the States, I hear all of these uses excuse to avoid dealing with the main issue. Mm -hmm. So that part I'm used to. What San Bernardino did is, because these people had a certain last name, certain faith, certain connections on Facebook, it's terrorism now. Mm -hmm. I think the FBI made a very ill-advised press release which in a sense showed we're doing something, but then shifted attention by saying they are terrorists. Well, I mean, to be fair, they are terrorists, or at least so it seems. Well, if, they're right? if they are terrorists, and it's a valid point, but if they're terrorists, and now moving on to that second whammyism, then let us call the kid, the teenager, who killed nine African-Americans at a Bible study group yeah. in mm. South Carolina earlier this year. Let us call him a terrorist because he had certain extreme political views. Yeah, because that was also clearly ideologically motivated Absolutely. in a way that, that, that could map onto jihadism. Yeah. But no one's going to call a white supremacist or someone with nostalgia for the U.S. Confederacy a terrorist. When you had an attack on a Planned Parenthood clinic just before San Bernardino, mm. killing three, injuring several, by someone whose political views simply were that anyone who dared have an abortion or actually dared serve women who were in need of help was therefore appeasing murder, when he walks in with those political views, that's a terrorist attack if you're going to use that criteria. Mm. Okay, I don't want to go down that road right now. What I want to go with is just the aftermath of all this, that because of San Bernardino, the exploitation of that, and you have to mention his name, I have him help us, but Donald Trump will step in and exploit that to take the issue now to the second part of this, which is we now are going to cast a stigma on one quarter of the world's population, mm. you know, well over one and a half billion people, and we're gonna say that none of them can enter the country. And so what we're gonna do is, rather than dealing with what causes this crime, rather than dealing with frustration, anger, hatred, and dealing with the guns, we're going to feed hatred, anger, and suspicion, because it's Muslims, it's Muslims. Mm. They can attack us from anywhere. Um, it's depressing. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, like, I have some sympathy with the authorities in the sense that it seems like it's, it is a weird case. Like, it's a, some kind of crossbreed of going postal and a jihadist plot. Like, he storms out of his place of work, he comes back, he shoots a bunch of people in a way that we've seen in other contexts many before. But he also has a house full of all this stuff. And, it doesn't fit and, and so into on. any paradigm. That's yeah. the problem. It, was very, it took a long time to work yeah. out just what, what exactly has happened here. I mean, probably we, won't, we won't want to say that if you want to carry out an act of terrorism and it takes people two days to work out that's what you did, you yeah. probably haven't pulled it off perfectly according to plan. But I think this probably, it does link back to what Scott's talking about, which is this increasing pressure on all different sectors of society, but especially Muslim Americans if we're talking about the US. I mean, and, and let's, let's bring it closer to home. I have friends who wear the hijab here 
who have said, you know, I get bumped into, I get called all sorts of names, I get, I feel really uncomfortable, and that's here in Birmingham. So you can imagine things that as this press machine arcs up, people are going to feel increasingly disenfranchised, increasingly marginalised, and that's no excuse for what happened at all in the slightest. But all of these things are contributing factors. So every crazy is going to come out of the woodwork, regardless of their religion. It, it, this this thing is just going to amp up and up and up, and so we're going to have these hybrid cases. Yeah, and I mean, it doesn't help when, you know, and I don't want to give him too much more of the oxygen publicity, God knows he's had it, plenty over the last, well, months now. But I mean, Donald Trump, even by his own standards, absolutely disgraced himself yeah. over the course of this week. You know, it's, it's uh, you know, morally repugnant, counterproductive, and, you know, he just has this benighted worldview, if worldview it even is, that coarsens the discourse around every, around every issue that, that he touches. My only fear, because I suspect that even the majority of the base of the Republican Party mm. has some instinct that, okay, this is getting beyond the pale. My only worry is that simply by virtue of existing as a ground-staking outlier, people like Ted Cruz or whoever who have awful views as well yeah. will start to seem like they're the acceptable face of American conservative politics, whereas they would have been regarded as extremist yeah. outliers only a few weeks ago because... Uh, uh, Donald Trump is putting the kind of stuff that like a drunken racist yeah. uh, at a party would boorishly come out with on the political agenda. So yeah. you can look good by comparison. So yeah. I worry there will be a pull to the to the right, even if it's not actually plausible that he's going to be the one who, who gets elected. Yeah, and in addition, he's dog whistling, isn't he? So he's galvanising a certain part of the, of the US electorate. I think he's just whistling yeah. at this point. <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's a better point. Trump's not going to become president. He's not going to win the Republican nomination. I, I just don't think he, that the establishment will let him go through. But my worry is this, it's, it's poison. It, it is poison into a culture which is already a very fearful culture. I mean, we've had decades of fear in America. We had the communists were going to take us over. We had problems at you know, race in the 1990s, crime and drugs, and then it was post 9-11. And so where you and I can talk about this really serious question about guns, and we're going to talk later on in the episode about serious questions about relations between police and communities, this all becomes abstracted into the, the, the folks who are going to get us from outside. And it's like it's a deliberate evasion of responsibility by politicians, mm. including Trump. But it is almost like not a deliberate evasion. It's sort of like an ingrained evasion of responsibility now. Responsibility for what? Responsibility, which is when you have violence in a community, you seek the causes of this. You try to deal with the causes. If you don't deal with the causes, this is going to be replicated. But rather than dealing with the causes, you create the abstractions, which do two things. One is you don't deal with the core problem, so it's going to continue. But second, you create more problems because you add on what Costello is referring to, which is fear and suspicion, which reverberates. One thing that didn't get picked up on San Bernardino is that how many mass shootings were carried out by American Muslims in the past, let's say, 15 years before this one this week? Now, to my mind, there has been one. Fort Hood? Which was Fort Hood. And if you remember, there were questions as to whether this was the, uh, the military chaplain 
what led him to commit this crime. There was quite, you know, that was a terrorist act, et cetera, or was it not? That was a very special case. But American Muslims... For those of us who don't know what Fort Hood is, let's go back. To yeah, sorry. In a, a large military base in Texas mm -hmm. several years ago, um, a chaplain who had served overseas, the whole question of the Iraq-Afghanistan theaters, just suddenly one day snaps and winds up killing, I think, not quite as many as in Santa Bernardo this last week, but several military personnel. What was the stress? What was the strain that led this to happen? Well, the easy way to sweep this all away is, is that he was a Muslim terrorist. No other incident I can think of an American Muslim. Now, that's not to say American Muslims are better than any other group. It's to simply say that the immediate reaction, which is that Muslims get radicalized, mm. of this is going to happen, was innovation. Mm. It was an evasion in the context of what has happened in recent years, and it's an evasion in terms of what's happened today. Yeah, I, mean, I think I mean the gun, the gun issue, meeting this issue is a really interesting one. I think because, you know, when it comes to guns, uh, you know, I understand in, in in ways maybe more than some outsiders try to like what the political and cultural issues are, are here. Like that, there is a section of the country who sincerely believe rightly or wrongly, I would say wrongly, because I guess I'm socialized into the American, uh, uh, sorry, into, into the European mindset that why would a private citizen need, need all this weaponry? But there are large sections of the country which for generations have been acculturated to think of guns as a normal thing. They don't want to give them up, etc., etc. So if you're into the idea that there is a constitutionally protected principle that you can't take guns away from people, fair play. However, what this issue is doing very interestingly is bringing that die-in-a-ditch absolutist principle into contact with another sentiment that a lot of the same political constituency feels, which is absolute terror about the, the Muslims under the beds uh, who are going to come and kill you and your children uh, and all of that. And as Will Salatan uh, on Slate put it um, very well earlier this week, who's you know, sort of right-of-center analyst of, of the conservative culture, if you really do believe in like, Second Amendment rights in this absolutist way, then you kind of end up believing in the right to stock up for jihad. Like it, it's really like what we have demonstrated here like, time and time again is that, okay, fair enough, it may be very difficult logistically, politically to pull guns out of American culture. It's even harder to work out where the psychology of radicalization is flowing from one part of the world to the other. Mm -hmm. So if you have a situation where all of these guns are available and you insist that there's nothing you can do to diminish that availability, mm -hmm. then people from all sorts of constituencies, be they white nationalists, be they Muslim radicals, be they some guy who just hasn't taken his medication this month and mm -hmm. thinks that the Martians are coming, mm -hmm. like people who are in a bad place or a very wrong-headed political place, mm -hmm are going to act out on that in a way they just don't have the capacity to do in most other countries because you can't kill this many people with you know with a bread knife or or, or even with a you know a, a lesser type of weapon than the kinds that are available you're pointing to something very interesting that that tension between the two worldviews and the inherent inconsistencies within the republican approach to this issue and i think that i think the democrats have pursued an interesting strategy on that recently with the two efforts that they made to um, introduce tighter gun control checks. And the first one was for the FBI to do background checks on every firearms purchased on the internet or um, at gun shows, which was voted down overwhelmingly by the Republicans. And the second one, which is where it gets interesting, for bans on people who are already listed on the state's terror watch list 
and who already aren't able to fly. Right, because this is the absurdity that was revealed this yeah. week, that you can be too dangerous to get on a plane, but not too dangerous yeah. to buy assault weapons. Yeah, so, so strategies like this, uh, which I think are quite clever on the part of the Democrats to shop the Republican kind of inherent internal, let's call them contradictions, hmm. I think do kind of press those buttons. The other thing that I was looking at, so a complete newcomer, just to lighten this for a second, a complete newcomer to US culture. Can someone explain to me what a Second Amendment event at a gun store is, please? Have, have you guys heard about these things? Second Amendment uh, I, I, I'm not parties. sure. It's just like a gathering of people to, uh, yeah, to, to joyously <laughs> celebrate their right to prepare for, I don't know, uh, either the defence of their homes or insurrection, uh, or more, I, I would imagine, more likely just to thumb their nose at the authorities who they imagine might be wanting to come for their guns at some point. I mean, Scott, you're from a part of the country where, <laughs> where without putting too fine a point on it, there is uh, perhaps a greater than average attachment to free availability of firearms. Can you shed any light on, on the cultural nuances here? I assume, sure. I assume it's not the thing you miss most about, I'm, about I'm not, Alabama. Yeah, I'm not sure it's nuanced as much. I mean, whereas some people might gather, say, at a Tupperware party and consider what they're going to get for their kitchens. And some people might gather and say, like, oh, I don't know, a baseball fantasy trading card party here. We just, like, celebrate the fact that guns can be freely distributed in this place. I mean, the upside of gun culture, if you want to say it's upside, is a celebration, for example, of hunting, the celebration of the idea, which goes back historically, that we went out, we tamed the land. Mm. Shame about the Native Americans, but let's not go there, right? <laughs> and that guns yeah. were part of this story. Right, like, like people teach their kids to shoot like yeah. their parents taught them, and it's deeply bound up with the sort of the lived uh, cultural experience of the South and all of that, right? Yeah, not, not just South, but also many years. Remember the West, right? right? The idea of taming the West, which goes up there. That's true, and up and that's Bernie. We've got Bernie Sanders up in Vermont, uh, mm -hmm. very liberal on, on guns, because that's just his constituents' position, which puts him in an odd place for the left the left wing insurgent in the Democratic yeah, so so it, it's, it's that notion of guns which becomes bound up with American individualism, which therefore says that any attempt to regulate guns is an attack on us as individuals and our rights. And that leads to the misreading of the Second Amendment, which, of course, just a reminder for listeners, was brought in not to say that anybody out there could go around and brandish guns. It was there basically to say that we had the freedom to organize militias because, you know what, we had just basically gotten our independence from the British and haven't helped us if they came back again and tried to try to take us back over. You know, so, okay, there's the cultural incident, and that's fine. But there has to be a line. And with respect, Christelle, absolutely, yeah, Democrats are playing politics, trying to nibble at the edges of yeah. this and so on. But look, there has to be a, a fundamental line which is drawn here, because I, I don't think you can nibble at the edges, edges and get very far. When Britain hit a breaking point in a country which had... A, you know, only a couple of percent of the annual deaths by guns that the U.S. had. But when it hit a breaking, breaking point with Dunblay, with Humberford, it brought in a new system which regulated gun ownership. Mm -hmm. When Australia had the Port Arthur incident, uh, one of the deadliest shootings in, in mass shootings in history, then they brought in a strict system of gun control. The states will not approach that. We know they won't approach it for the reasons that because yeah. California has relatively, by national standards, pretty strict gun laws. Mm -hmm. But nevertheless, even strict gun laws within U.S. constitutional interpretation still allow this 
kind of arsenal to be assembled. You know, either directly or through through other people. This uh, this pair of people were able to stock up yeah. their houses in a way that in many other cultures would freak would, would really freak people out. It just seems to me, as a matter of basic practicality, okay, it is fiercely difficult to do anything about either of these issues, but. Mm-hmm compared to attempting to get inside the head of and monitor the movements of every single person who either is or might be uh, flirting with radical views, trying to minimize the capability of anyone who already is radical to get hold of lethal stuff seems like the marginally lesser of the tasks as a logistical matter. So it's, it's only then the ideological frame that takes you to this weird place where you start saying, well, no, clearly because we can't do the obvious thing, which is keep a good handle on who's got guns and maybe try to minimize the number of people who are in that category, uh, you end up coming up with these crazy schemes like let's keep all Muslims out of the country as you're like fall back. You know, these discussions, I like to say, here's a way forward. We can find a way forward. I just don't see it. I just don't see it. All I can say, you know, to my fellow Americans, you know, Try to basically talk to each other respectfully, decency. Don't exclude anyone. Try to build up something which is based on respect and try to stem some of the hatred that leads to this type of violence because I don't think your politicians are going to do anything to change the broad context which uh, allows guns and thus violence to flourish. Number of the week. This is the item where we take a number, take a news story, and try and find some way to bring them together for the purposes of being able to talk about it. Cristal, you are our returning champion from overseas, so you get the pleasure of going first. Thank you so much. Hit me with numerals. So my number of the week is actually based on a news story, or was the basis for a news story. And my number of the week is 398,863. I think I'm going to need a pen. Could you could you do that again? Three hundred and ninety-eight thousand. Uh huh. Eight hundred and sixty-three, and that is not dollars or pounds. That is the number of people who have signed a petition asking to block. I've got DT down here. Uh, the the what is he called? The Trump Meister. The uh, uh, he the is Trump now apparently. That's not <laughs> as new on me. The Trump there. The that might Donald sound a little Trump. bit too foreign for his taste. A little bit too. Actually, a little bit too. Uh, uh, endearing to block Donald Trump from entry into the UK. Holy hell, that is a lot of people. I knew so, it was pretty yeah, high. So but... it was a hundred thousand uh, a little while ago. It jumped two hundred thousand, and as these things are want to do, it's now mm. almost four hundred thousand people who have signed that petition uh, has been picked up globally. So my number of the week was was linked to this petition. Okay, so it's three three hundred ninety eight thousand eight hundred sixty three and counting. I imagine uh, yes. that figure's probably gone up even in the time yes. we've been here. I'm gonna go with. Two as my number of this week, which is to say two degrees. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not the name of a, a retro band. Uh, it, it is the number of degrees that we are supposedly, uh, if we go by standards previously agreed at a meeting in Cancun, attempting to keep the rise in global temperatures um, uh, from pre-industrial times. So you take pre-industrial times as your, your baseline, two degrees is the amount more than that that we are supposed to be trying to cap off global 
climate change at. Um, and there is a meeting in Paris. Uh, I don't know if it's still going on as we speak. Certainly it's been going on for several days up till now, uh, which is the UN's Climate Change Convention, where it seems like literally every person and organization who has ever looked in the direction of the word climate is now assembled as sort of potluck dinner is how it's been described, because they know the United States can't possibly agree to and approve a treaty. Everyone's just bringing whatever they're prepared to offer unilaterally to the table uh, to try and come up with it. In a happy coincidence of separate plans coming together. Great minds, Scott. My number of the week is 34, which is not that completely removed from two, because 34... Is that how many degrees it will actually no, increase? No, it isn't. It's not quite that bad. Yet, Welcome to the eternal summer in the UK. Yeah, Mad Max did well this yeah. year. Everyone seems to like it. But 34 refers to the consequences of not dealing with two, because it's the number of atoll, reef, and coral islands in the nation of Kiribati, which is in the Central Pacific, spans 1.3 million square miles. The islands are quite separated from each other, but loosely form a nation. It's along the equator, and the reason why it becomes relevant in the context of climate change is, is if there is not uh, a significant uh, restriction on the rate of warming, the ocean levels will rise, and Kiribati will become our 21st century Atlantis. Mm. It will be overcome uh, by the waters. On November 24th, Chicago police released a dash cam video taken more than a year ago recording the death of 17-year-old Can McDonald, uh, which had taken place at the hands of city police. Um, the video showed that though McDonald was holding a knife, he posed no immediate threat to anyone at the time an officer shot him 16 times, uh, continuing to shoot him after he fell to the ground. That's a lot of times. Murder charges against the officer were immediately announced after the release of the video, uh, and shortly afterward the city's police superintendent was pushed out of his job. But the suspicion hung heavy in the air that the office of the mayor, Rahm Emanuel, had also been complicit in delaying the release of the tape under the pretext of ongoing investigation. Investigation. If it had been released at the time, the video would have come in the racially charged aftermath of events such as the shooting of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, provoking confrontations between the police department and the black community that would have hobbled the mayor's ultimately successful re-election bid. On Monday, uh, the U.S. Justice Department announced it was going to be investigating Chicago's police department, specifically focusing on the issue of whether it tried to cover up evidence that this was a murder. Although things had calmed down somewhat at the period immediately, from the period immediately after Ferguson, uh, the question of police treatment of African Americans has continued to be a topic of heated political contention with the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement, seeking to draw attention to the regularity with which black men are killed or injured by police in America. Black Americans are also stopped by police, arrested and jailed out of all proportion to their share of the population, a phenomenon that, uh, to be sure, has multiple causes, but the strong and reasonable suspicion is they get the rough end of the justice system at all levels. Cristala, you've just come back from New York City, um, which is a place where the mayor, Bill de Blasio, has paid a high political price for failing to be unstinting uh, in his support for the police department there over the uh, death of Eric Garner, a black man who died in 2014 after being put in a chokehold by a police officer. Uh, between what you know from book learning uh, and what you experienced uh, from being over in, in the United States recently, what's your thinking on this? So my thinking, as usual, is not going to be uh, coherent and analytic 
Instead, it's going to be, you know, a series of abstract responses to my last month in the US. Okay. A that's, chance, uh, this that's is a my chance. A, a political travelogue, if you will. Yeah, an incoherent jet-lagged political travelogue, let's call it that. Um, so, so, front up, like I'm a Mediterranean Australian who has lived in those parts of the world and recently-ish moved to the UK. Um, no real engagement with US politics at any meaningful level. So when you two, you know, start talking US politics, my eyes glaze over quite a lot. Is that what's been happening? So I was, I was wondering happening. what that expression was on your face. Confusion, a little bit of like, what, what are they talking about? US where? US what? Obama who? But, <laughs> um, but, How so, will that second Bush term turn out? That's right. <laughs> was going to New York for this last month it almost completely ignorant to the Black Lives Matter movement mm-hmm. further than kind of anything more than what I saw on on the news about Ferguson and continued shootings um, and and my response was one generally of oh my god this is horrible uh, what is going on over there as in the phenomenon to which Black Lives Matter is responding rather than Black Lives Matter. Rather than Black Lives Matter, yes. Thank you for that clarification and saving us from getting a lot of trolled uh, responses. Um, I'm, uh, I'm sure someone somewhere is recording a podcast about how terrible and frightening and awful Black Lives Matter the movement is. I'm sure more than one person is recording that podcast. Um, I'm hoping they're not going to be listening to this one and riffing, us, riffing, riffing off us. Well, we but can anyway. be assured they have free access to firearms, whoever they are, <laughs> which is comforting. But hopefully not free access to those firearms and the UK at the same time. Yeah, that's a tougher one. Um, so, so I went over to, to New York and, and I also noticed the extent to which people of colour and black people in the US and people who are white in the US live tremendously parallel lives, right? Like front up, first time that I saw that absolute missing of a conversation between people of different colour in the US. And the second thing that I actually had the very good fortune um, of was to have a good friend who's involved in in the uh, some of the Ferguson responses, some of the activist responses. So, so I'm listening to us in the first part of this podcast now talking about radicalisation and radicals mm. and and I think what what is happening with Black Black Lives Matter and police brutality is radicalization in the good sense of the word, which is uh, radical radical responses to police brutality or rethinking of responses, increased awareness of of police brutality. And this, I guess, what interested me about the Ferguson stuff and the Black Lives Matter movement was this kind of evolving model of the modern protester, right? So you see people who are becoming this this kind of hybrid citizen journalist, also part activist, part organizer, the core for kind of body cams on police, the mm. fact that they're everywhere all the time, the fact that they are really well organised, as well as this kind of mass movement. And the whole point of it mm. is to show instead of kind of, they've been criticised, I think they've been criticised for not giving really kind of coherent responses and policy uh, advice. But I think a lot of the point of Black Lives Matter generally and this idea of, of showing police brutality is just... The aim is kind of an abrupt, wide-scale change in consciousness, so channeling this kind of grief and anger that people feel about these police killings over and over and over and over again, and just making people who are not aware of it uncomfortable, Mm. showing them them first how frequently 
um, this this happens and making them uncomfortable in those spaces. And they've done a pretty good job of imposing themselves on the democratic presidential contest yes, as well, they obliging are. people who would, you know, for reasons uh, good or ill, want to focus on other things or prioritize other things, front up and address yep. these issues. Like Bernie Sanders clearly had no intention of making this a major part yep. of his campaign until suddenly he was made to look quite bad uh, by by direct engagement from these activists, yep. and he had to. He had to change course, and Hillary Clinton, you know, again yeah. has been much more present in the debate about this issue than I suspect she would have been if she hadn't had that pressure from the outside. Yeah, and also has had meetings with with organisers of of those movements to make sure that she does speak to matters that are important to them. So, yeah, so they are also being very strategic. But I think what uh, what struck me was three things that that I noticed from my time over there. One was these calls for a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, or at least a Truth Commission, talking about the legacy of slavery in the US, but also mm. talking about the impact today, the shootings today. And um, and I think that's gaining some kind of, it's, it's got a lot of criticism, but it's also gaining some momentum. And there are some very strong voices behind that, strong black voices behind that. And then something that I got to witness directly was this thing called the Ferguson Truth-Telling Project, which is actually a very grassroots movement from people who are involved in the Ferguson protests and allies going across the country now taking statements, recorded testimonies from family members of people who have been killed by the police, including Michael Brown's father. Mm. So, and this testimony is really, really powerful because it shows, it knocks down, it responds to that um, they were they were doing something wrong. They were carrying guns. This kind of they des they must have deserved it to get this response. So you see very very raw stories, uh, and you can't contest them. And you see the context around it, and you see the impact on their families, and you see them time and time again in different contexts. So the Ferguson Truth Telling Project, I think, is a really interesting one to watch out for, uh, in terms of what they're doing now, the spaces that they're creating, and the fact that they're going... When I went, I went to a truth-telling um, project kind of storytelling event in Brooklyn. Mm. And it was, it was, in, a, it was in a Buddhist centre, and it was catered mostly to a, a white, affluent audience that might be sympathetic but is a little too scared to ask us awkward questions about what's going on and how can we be allies. Mm -hmm. So they're learning to, um, to sharpen as well what they're trying to say to different audiences and they're using this, this documented evidence of police brutality and the impact of it in different spaces I think to test that out. So that was really interesting. And if you want to, if you want to know more about the Ferguson Truth Telling Project, we can probably stick some links up. Yeah, we we we've got our Facebook page now. Yeah. We can uh, we we'll can put, put we can on, put it up there or tweet it we'll out. Put as well. it on the Facebook page, and also you can see the testimonies, which is really which are really powerful as well. And then the other thing I wanted to mention that that I found out about was um, it involved increasing efforts at documenting police brutality, which in itself is a hard thing to do because of the nature of it, right? Mm. No, um, yeah, I mean, they're not usually seeking publicity no, for the facts. No, as I mean, as this case amply demonstrated, yeah. I mean, there's all sorts of issues to do with uh, uh, missing footage from security cameras in nearby uh, yeah. retail outlets, um, people saying they're investigating something 
for 12 months when the investigation should involve talking to like two people and watching a video you know there's clearly a really strong effort not to let the facts out unless you absolutely have to yeah yeah even where like even where there is a video recording of events it can take you more than a year and relentless pressure from journalists to get access to it if it doesn't disappear yeah if if, if you should be so lucky as to still have it in place yeah Mm. Scott looks like he wants to... No, I, just, I, I find it fascinating. And actually, Merry Christmas, a little bit hopeful to actually come from that because, uh, okay, coming at this from a couple of different perspectives, the first is that, um, you know, this is, is not a new issue. Mm. I mean, we can go back to the 1960s and the relations between African-American groups and the police. How were they? Not very good at all, to say no, the least. Yeah. Um, even at a time when we were supposedly advancing civil rights. And we're not talking about Southern police, where you've got mm. obvious problems. We're talking about in northern cities mm. or out in California. Yeah, which is underappreciated. Like race relations are diabolical in plenty of the right. north and the, and, the, and the west. Absolutely. But rather than, in a sense, confronting and advancing, you know, it's flashing back in 1992, which is the Los Angeles mm-hmm. uprising, which, of course, occurs when you don't deal with that situation of policemen caught on film viciously beating an African-American, Rodney King, and you see the aftermath of that. Now, that takes us to 2015 and says, okay, how do we prevent this from becoming an us versus them, a polarizing issue that just leads to more cycles of violence and recrimination? And I say this, I'd better declare an entry point here. Um, my grandfather was a longtime policeman. He rose to be assistant chief of police in a, in a middle-sized U.S. city. My father, later in life, became a ride-along chaplain who rode with the police uh, in, in Alabama as they were on duty. And I think partly because of those experiences, I think I come into it and say that my fear in some respects is that, not fear, I guess it's perspective, is that quite often this becomes polarized into all African Americans are bad, they cause crime, they deserve this, they get it, but then conversely it's like all police forces are bad, this is like endemic in the police forces. And my experience is, is that most policemen aren't like this. Most of them aren't. But you get these flashpoints. It's happened in New York. It's happened in Chicago. It's happened in LA. It's happened in smaller cities like South, in Charleston and South Carolina. So to hear of a, a process which rather than just simply going straight for recrimination says, all right, how do we document this? How do we establish that it happened? How do we get justice for what happened? But in that way, which isn't to try to feed the ongoing polarized thing of simply we're going to have to draw battle lines. And I guess from what you're telling me is that this is a positive way forward. I think so. I do. think there are, I mean, the thing is that it appears to me that the factions are split, right, no. between the, this is this is something that we don't want to, um, we don't want to work with the police, we don't want to, we don't want to work with anybody. This is a case of our anger and our hurt, and this is the problem is capitalism and down with capitalism. And, yeah. and I'm also sympathetic to that to that yeah. viewpoint because yeah. the problem is capitalism and the legacy of slavery and yeah. all of this. Um, but there is also a faction of people who are taking this not conciliatory but this yeah. healing approach. Yeah. And more integrated, and there are very interesting initiatives between specific police forces and communities, building um, building conversations, creating open spaces. But this is they're feeling their way through it. I think so, but I say that for two reasons. But I think it's important because this isn't going to change. Isn't going to be solved overnight. Let me 
First, authorities who carry out cover-ups like we might have seen in Chicago won't say they're being racist. Mm. And in fact, what they do is there's a variety of motives. They're embarrassed. <laughs> they fear the repercussions of lawsuits that might mm. occur. They fear that at the time when it might have come out, it might have stoked yeah. a spiral yeah. of violence. Yeah, and there are those who are institutionally responsible right. for people who might do these things and for the situations that come about who, you know, their concern is not so much to... Uh, uh, pursue a racist agenda. It's just that they're defending their institutions and their own careers, yeah. and that has come to require that they hush up the acts of their racist employees. So it kind of becomes a structural issue then. So these things happen because people try to evade accountability. And I think by going and saying, no, you must be accountable, mm. but we're not just going to simply throw up the label racist immediately. We know that race is part of it, but we want accountability here. That's important. Because of the second issue, which Christelle has alluded to, and that is Look, this isn't just about police facing young black men. We're talking about economic, social, entrenched economic and social problems that produce the conditions where these confrontations occur. That's a long haul yeah. consideration. Uh, I wanted to ask just a question, Chris sort of. This follows a couple of years on from Occupy Wall Street, yeah. which was a much different type of protest saying we're going to take on capitalism, we're going to take on the structures, yeah. the banks, and so on. How much overlap is there between the, these two movements, or, or have we moved from saying, look, you know, you're tilting at, at capitalist windmills here, you need to deal, as it were, with the fundamental issue first? I don't know enough about the organisers of the okay. movement to know how much they've how much they've cross learned. Yeah. My feeling from the conversations that I've had have been that it's a very uh, locally owned process. Uh, And also there's there's a massive emphasis on letting this evolve the way that it's going to evolve, the way that protesters and victims and survivors want it to, which means that they want to, they might be uh, protecting themselves from those kind of Engagements. However, I think there are also very key uh, public activists who probably have been spending a lot of time thinking about how other movements been effective. And there's also this 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 pull to give very real policy advice as well. So there are different. You can't talk about just the kind of pushing at capitalist windmills because there are different sectors within those movements that are pushing at that. I wanted to note though, on what, on what, when you talk about the kind of, the longer running pro, um, um, issues, there's a very, very good writer uh, who's been writing for a long time for The Atlantic called Tanahasi Coates, uh, who wrote- I've just bought some people his book for Christmas. It's a very, very, the, Between the World and Me. Yes. And, um, but also he wrote, if you want to get into this issue and understand the length of it, he wrote a, a very accessible piece called The Case for Reparations mm. on, at, for the Atlantic. Yeah, which was much, I mean, the, the book is more of a sort of first person yeah. uh, narrative account. And then that's a more uh, analytical walkthrough yeah. of the history of, well, the structural denial of black, uh, yeah. of, of wealth to black populations and the generational accumulation of wealth. Yeah. It's a tremendous read. It is an excellent piece of work. And he's a great writer. I mean, I, th- I think the, la- the last few years, horrible, though a lot of the things we've seen have been, I think have been kind of instructive in a way, especially these incidents where we've had a series of video-captured yeah. uh, uh, deaths, because I think when they are then combined with a lot of these first-person stories that people tell, I think it's brought a lot more people... Uh, white people, especially yeah. being, I guess, the constituency that that, that, that tilts these things in, in, in the public discourse, into the position of just having to accept 
in a way that's much less equivocal, the fact that the black experience of the police is different yeah. and that these things do happen. There was always a risk before, I think, that even people who were on the uh, you know, the, the liberal left would find a way to tell themselves that a lot of the time when black people were furious about what the police had done, that it was some kind of misunderstanding yeah. or that maybe they have a chip on their shoulder and they like yeah. aggravated a situation that then spun out of control. I think what's appreciated much better now from some of these instances, no, like sometimes and perhaps not all that rarely, uh, you know, the police do act in a way that is aggressive and provocative and indeed possibly uh, even criminal and, and lethally criminal. And in a broader number of cases than that, you know, in, in things, cases like Michael Brown, for example, where it turns out that, you know, once the facts were really gone through in detail by the U.S. Justice Department, it wasn't a murder and it probably wasn't even manslaughter, but it was one of these many situations where a police officer escalates a situation probably unnecessarily to the point where force, lethal force then gets used rather than taking the approach that you're, you know, that, that, that having a, a citizen die at your hands needs to be uh, much more carefully avoided. Um, you know, I don't think police officers shoot people for fun, most of them anyway, but there is a way of approaching policing that, that puts you in situations much more regularly where that, that's going to be an outcome and that's been uh, I think uh, the, with the paramilitarization of the approach that police take to their jurisdiction has been a really big problem. I mean, the second thing, as you say, and as I imagine the radical fringe of, of, of Black Lives Matter, the focus on capitalism might say, you know, this is not just about a few bad apples. You know, there are some big, deep structural issues here to do with the legacies of like social and economic inequality, racial division, pathologies of the criminal justice system, the war on drugs, the breakdown of social services, all these things. So. I do feel for the police in some in some genuine way because like uh, society has disengaged from addressing a whole raft of issues social and economic etc in such a way as to set the table for all sorts of strife and division and crime and hostility and then they throw the police onto the front line to to manage this as their enforcers um uh, without addressing any of the things that contribute to, to making uh, society very hard for good reason to manage and, and keep orderly. I do feel for the police very limitedly, and you're right, they are the symbol of a structure that is, that is deeply, deeply, deeply problematic. I feel much more for the 12-year-old kid who gets shot walking down the street because he's black. Mm. Yeah. But there hopefully is a common bond here beyond all the problems that will have to be dealt with. And that is, you would hope that police officers come from the community, that police officers come out of the community. Which raises a question, by the way, about representation, how many African-Americans are in the force, Hispanic-Americans, et cetera. Mm. But if you give that feeling of police officers coming from the community, the same community where the victims have come from, where activists have come from that say, we want something done about this, then at least you establish an opening bond. The problem mm. here is when you have a detachment which says, you know, the victims and the activists, they come from over here, and the police mm. and the authorities, they come from over here. Mm. And you just have this huge gulf from the get-go. Yeah, there isn't a, like, it's, not, it's not that there is a community and it's your community and you play the role of police officer within it. It's almost like there's, there's your community and there's these people yeah. uh, who are threatening to it, and your job is to... You know, it, it, it's, it's colonial almost in, it, in its uh, yeah. mentality, that your job is to, 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 to maintain order and provide safety for your real constituency, who are these people over here. It's protection of privilege, yeah. actually. Mm. But you see, and again, you know, here's me trying to be the utopian here, Drabo, is that those questions of privilege, those questions, those 
are always there for us to deal with. If you start off with at least the common ground, which is simply, it's not just police up on the hill with them there in the authority and then us down here in the valley. So I think you've got to find that in terms of a space for negotiation, like you talked about with the end of it. So I think it's going to have to come from the local neighborhood initiatives, mm. especially. Uh, it is not, I think, probably unsurprising that a lot of these incidents happen in big cities, mm. large cities, where you get a separation from the local and then it's just this big, as it were, structure up at the top. Yeah. And, you know, and, and I think just the, the final note uh, the, that I would make is that I regard what it, all lives matter, which is the response that comes back to Black Lives Matter from the Republicans, uh, may, primarily the Republicans at least, as just such an obnoxious uh, um, diversionary response. I mean, because obviously it's true, it's, tr it's so true as to be tried. Yes, all yeah. lives matter, nobody is denying that. But the whole raison d'etre for the movement to draw attention to the fact that there are specific problems faced by the black community when dealing with the police. Um, and any specific and well-founded grievance that is responded to with, oh yes, but everybody, this much larger category, also has their sad story to tell. Uh, uh, and, you know, everything, I mean, ultimately, you know, why just lives? Everything matters, right? Yes. Like, but if you follow that logic, you don't deal with anything. So when you have a concrete issue, which is police treatment of the African-American community, can we please just take a moment to focus on that without going into some kind of uh, rancorous uh, diversion of terminological dispute would be my plea, one which will not be listened to. Anyway. Much like your pleas to stop... Um climate change. Well, in, 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 indeed, although hopefully our podcast at least will be listening to that, 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 that is more, something. More, more specifically. Yeah. Anyway. We should send our podcast to Paris, see if it makes a difference. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm sure they'll, uh, that they'll have it all nailed down within a moment after it arrives. Anyway, I think we've set the world to rights. Thank you very much. You can follow the Political Worldview podcast on Twitter at Paul Worldview, and please do. Um, you can also subscribe to us on SoundCloud or iTunes and leave us a rating or a comment, which helps others discover the pod. So please do that. And as I announced last week uh, on our Unplugged edition, you can also come to our new show page, uh, which is awesome, on Facebook. I'm a big Facebooker, and I'm very pleased to be, uh, to be present in parallel there. It's facebook.com forward slash pollworldview, and you can see article links and uh, post your own comments there. My co-hosts have been Cristal Yakinthu. It is so good to have you back, Cristal. It is lovely it's to been, be it's, it's been It's been a blast. Thank you for, thank you for not staying in New York. <laughs> uh, where can people find you, should they be so inclined? Find me on Twitter, if you don't have the privilege of being at this university. Um, on, what is my name again? At Yakinthu. That's the one, at Yakinthu. Y-A-K-I-N-T-H-O-U. Thank you, Adam, for that. And Scott, well, I've seen, I've seen plenty of you, but, uh, but, but uh, I would still like to know what your social media addresses are. I, uh, I'm, on, I'm at Political Worldview's partner, EA Worldview, which is uh, eaworldview.com, or on Twitter at ScottLucas underscore EA. I'm Adam Quinn. Uh, I am on Facebook. I am 100, Adam Quinn 161, to be technical, if you're trying to tell me apart from the other ones, but I look like me, so that's how you tell. Uh, and I'm also at Adam James Quinn on Twitter. Our producer is Connor McKenna, and you've been listening to us from the uh, Pulsus Department at the University of Birmingham in England. Have a very Merry Christmas, everybody. Um, and we will be back soon. We very much hope you will be too. Bye. Bye.